Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more red days. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Coming at you from the capital city of the free state of Florida, where we are dealing with national issues through the prism of truth, constitution, and a little redneck common sense. Matt Robert Frost, in his great poem, Mending Wall, at the very last line said, Good fences make good neighbors. And it seems that this last two to three weeks, the news has been all about the fence, specifically the border fence in Texas. Or the lack of a border fence in Texas, right? Um, It's just a crazy situation. Uh, I don't think we've ever really seen anything like this. It's been at the center of a lot of uh, public policy debate for decades now. Obviously, it was a big deal back in 2016 when Trump was running the first time. I think we still can't quite get our arms or our heads around just how how bad and divisive and troubling and and how bad it is for our country, for our national security, et cetera, et cetera. You can just keep on with the, um, you know, with the superlatives as far as just what a big deal it is. And one of the things that I know we wanted to talk about a couple of weeks ago, we didn't really get the time to, is just this basic conflict between state and federal government. What's going on with Governor Abbott, uh, the defiance, um, you know, and defi- I, I hate to even lapse into those words and use use a word like defiant. I mean, they're just trying to do their job. They're trying to defend their state. They're trying to provide um, some physical obstacles to try to cut down on this influx of illegal immigration and fighting the federal government, fighting them through the court system, fighting the Biden administration, fighting a leftist mindset on all this sort of thing. It's uh, it's very troubling. Well, Matt, I look many of the talk radio shows of today, different from ours, uh, provide an opportunity to sort of pound your chest and vent. Right? I mean, people are frustrated. They like to hear their talk show host vent for them about the insanity of the left, or perhaps some of the rationality that's currently in the political scene. And I do like to try to bring issues back within this prism of truth, the Constitution, and common sense. The Constitution does not have a lot to say specifically about how a immigration and naturalization service is supposed to be administered. However, using our common sense, it appears that this is not really about an immigration and naturalization issue. It's about a national security issue where we are now protecting ourselves from an evasion. Did you see the last report that as of this year, uh, going back for the full fiscal year of 2023, back to, um, I think it was back to July, we've, we've had a million people now, a million undocumented immigrants cross the border and they're living, they've been absorbed by the American culture at this point. It's mind blowing. I mean, it's just really mind blowing. And I know that the numbers, if you look at the entire Biden administration, what it's like eight or 9 million at this point, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is mind blowing, and um, you know, there's no spine, there's no backbone to try to correct it, to try to solve it. Um, the, the solutions are fairly simple. They may be somewhat expensive, but they're not that expensive when you think about what else we spend money on in this country. 
uh, what what we spend federal tax dollars for. Uh, it seems like it's just a lack of will. And, uh, you know, it's discouraging from that standpoint, but it also sets up the situation where it's this big political debate. And uh, I think the White House is looking pretty bad right now. They are now, of course, kind of scapegoating it and saying, oh, well, if we just have, you know, some sort of new piece of legislation from Congress, then, you know, that'll that'll do it. That'll be the thing that um, gets us to mobilize and actually uh, try to enforce the border. Uh, obviously, I think that's a smokescreen. I don't think that's what's going on, but that's what they're trying to portray it as. Yeah, I think smokescreen is right. Look, for many, many years, as we've seen this border crisis evolve, I think that we all presumed that it was incompetence. Uh, we certainly have had what I would call a, a um, systemic frustration in the country about the failure of the federal government, the failure of the White House, the chief executive to keep that border closed. It certainly was a defining issue for Trump in 2016. Now, as we get ready to move into this political cycle, it seems to be no longer about um, seems to be no longer about incompetence, but a perception that the president and the White House and his advisors are deliberately leaving the border open to accomplish some sort of weird scheme to either influence future elections. With, with people who may be more favorable to their cause or even have bought into this kind of Marxist critical theory notion that America needs to be deconstructed and, and rebuilt. And the way to do this is to create chaos across the board. Yeah, there and there's definitely uh, lefties that are bragging about it. You know, they're, they're actually just as these negotiations are coming up, uh, they're saying, yeah, the border's still open. It's kind of like they're high-fiving in the back rooms. Um what do you make? I mean, do you think we could see open conflict between Abbott's guys, any of the any of the guys that the that the um, twenty five or so other governors are, who have pledged sympathy and and uh, support for Abbott? Do you think we could see open conflict of some sort between the state forces and the feds? Well, you know, I started talking about that a couple of weeks ago. It's hard not to talk about it. I am uh, glad today, Matt. We do have a guest that's coming on for the second and third segment, which our entire audience should be interested to, to uh, stick with us and listen to is George P. Bush, former land commissioner of Texas. Yeah, uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, former uh, attorney general candidate out there. I think George can give us some good perspective on the legalities, uh, the, the, the legal issues we're facing as well as some of the political stuff. But getting to your point about this conflict, uh, think about this. Um, you've got federal agents being directed by the president not to support the Texas Guard and what they're doing to support the border. They've actually been, even been instructed by the president to tear down uh, fencing, to tear down razor wire, and to essentially assert their authority over not enforcing the border. Uh, that seems to be the directive coming from the White House. You have now a, an enraged Texas electorate and enraged elected officials saying, hey, this is causing mass chaos, uh, crime is on the increase, uh, our fiscal burden is increasing, and uh, now these two agencies are in conflict. Then, if you notice, Matt, uh, I think it was a week and a half ago when Biden sent his order down to the border agents, the union sent that back a letter to Biden and said, we actually stand with Texas on this. This is unprecedented. It's remarkable. Unprecedented. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to mention the words civil war, but there's certainly civil conflict here when you have a federal agency telling the president no to his order and to support a Texas border guard. 
And a lot of times law gets settled because it gets challenged. You know, there, there, you end up having conflict in the court system or some sort of real conflict. And so things have to be sorted out. And it feels like that's what's happening, that, that you basically you have a governor in Texas that's that's saying, no, you know, we're we're going to pursue what we think is right. And it's uh, who's going to blink first. And then what are the what are the courts going to do? So in the next segment, we're going to be talking to former land commissioner of Texas, George P. Bush. He definitely has Florida roots, uh, part of the Bush family. We'd like to claim him here in Florida, but stick with us for the next segment as we begin to unwind some of these issues related to the legalities and the conflict with the federal government that Texas is facing right now. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> and back again. America in View will be right back. Counseling the woke back to freedom and rational thought. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for segment number two, and I'm super gratified today to have former Texas Land Commissioner, former Attorney General candidate, and what I consider to be a good friend, George P. Bush on the line. Now, George has some great connections to Florida. I keep trying to convince him that he's a Floridian, but he was born in Houston. And despite the fact that he's got great ties here, uh, we have to recognize that he is a Texan by heart. But, George, welcome to the show this morning. We're super excited to talk to you about border security. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So real quick, just to kind of get some of the pleasantries out of the way, if you don't mind, for our audience, we know that you've had a great stint, great run as land commissioner. You had a dynamic campaign that almost got nationalized with your attorney general race out there. How are you enjoying life post-politics for the moment? Well, I'm not going to lie. Um not having people uh, get angry at you every day for doing the right thing is not not missed. But I love being closer to family, to friends, to God, uh, which is really important for me at this stage of my career. And after I lost, I reached out to my pastor and asked for advice. And he said, go coach your son's baseball team and, and talk to me in a year and see what you think. I think it'll be important for you. And Lo and behold, it was the best advice I've ever received. I'm now spending a lot of time on the uh, sand lots of Texas Little League baseball fields and mm. Central Texas, and it's just been a blessing to have more time with family, friends, and really get back to basics, but um, still staying involved politically by forming a new political action committee called Restore Trust, where I'm helping to elect conservative candidates here in Texas, similar to the MAFPAC model, which you and your, your audience may be familiar with in Florida, and hopefully seeking to expand it and uh, focusing on border security, sensible national government, lighter regulation, and less red tape. And so it's a very common sense conservative agenda that uh, I think people are getting excited about. So still staying involved. George, we're going to dive into the public policy here in a second. But before we get there, that's really a great account of interaction with your pastor and getting into the athletics with some younger people. But brag on yourself a little bit. You're a pretty accomplished baseball player yourself. And uh, I know you had some great baseball days back in Miami and in college. Remind us of, of some of that. Yeah, so in Texas, football's king. But, you know, in Florida, as you know, baseball, it's not just a sport, it's a religion. And, um, you know, growing up, I remember playing with people like A-Rod, who was in a competitive high school, um, already, you know, being prospected by the majors. You had Danny Cannell, who eventually was a two-sport athlete up in your neck of the woods in Tallahassee at FSU. Just incredible talent 
out on those baseball fields in, in South Florida. And after putting in a lot of hard work, I was proud to be, you know, all state 2A and, you know, started playing footsie with uh, University of Florida. I shouldn't maybe say that too loudly on this uh, podcast, but, <laughs> uh, but, but eventually got accepted to, to Rice University. And this is at the time that Coach Wayne Graham came in, and Wayne Graham was an old rubber arm pitcher for you know various minor league teams and the Astros. He left San Jacinto Community College, led them to two national championships, and you know Rice University, the AD, recruited him to coach. And so the story I always share is I remember on the first day walking into the locker room and introducing myself to the coach, and I was a walk-on, so he didn't know who I was from Adam. And he said, what position do you play? And I said, well, I play, I play first base. You know, I was all-state 2A in Florida. And he said, well, you know, son, uh, I hate to tell you, but we already got first base taken care of. And he pointed over in the corner, and in came in Lance Berkman. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, 6'2", 225. It could cru- uh, crush the ball for both sides of the plate. So it was humbling, you know, going up to the – collegiate level we eventually made the, the college world series and just really proud to uh to make the team and learned a lot about myself and you know try to push myself to the next level and it's those lessons and um that i just love about baseball and it, just tying into a book i'm reading i would recommend uh 50 greatest moments in baseball and um it's just a great uh, compendium of some of the reasons why we we love the sport so much. So trying to pass it on to my boys and other kids and hopefully sharing that love for the game. That's awesome. And we appreciate it. We were talking sports actually on our show last week. We were talking about some golf and sports is just a great place for people to test themselves, you know, sort of see what they're capable of, uh, pursue excellence, do it in a, in a gentlemanly and sportsmanlike way. And so, yeah, we always like, like hearing that and sort of tying it back into everything else. Um, well, Brad, I know that we want to steer into some public policy, and I, I would love to just ask from the outset, George, if you could give us like a little color commentary on how it feels in Texas. I mean, it, it's kind of obvious that Texas is receiving a lot of the brunt of the current immigration policy in this country. Is it a sense of hopelessness? I mean, how do you, how do people feel in Texas? I hate to be cynical, but it, it does feel like a broken record every time you know, this reaches the national headlines, which it seems like every day, because, you know, we've been crying wolf now for, for years. Mm. And, you know, and and we don't see an end to this. I mean, I, I think it is going to be the defining issue of 24. And I do think that Trump wins. And so, you know, there is there is hope around the corner and people are, are a little bit more hopeful, but the numbers just continue to get worse. And I know your audience knows that the recent figure that was shared was that just in this fiscal year alone, we've already crossed, you know, a million encounters. We're now, I think in December, we had over 300,000 encounters. The border was number one issue in our legislative session where we appropriated billions of dollars and then had a special session to appropriate an additional $4 billion. I think the estimate I've heard that Texas taxpayers just have paid at the state level is well in excess of $12 billion in the last five legislative sessions. So this hits home for us, you know, and if there is kind of a positive aspect to what's happening to these dangerous policies at the federal level and the sanctuary cities policies is now cities and blue areas now are understanding that, you know, every state is truly a border state. And you hear that frequently, but now it it really hits home to a lot of these communities. And so um, 
so I think a lot of people are scratching their their heads and wondering what can we do about this. And so um, I think it's very clear that you know the Republican agenda in the Congress is, especially in the House, is very clear that you have to close the asylum loopholes. You've got to make the process easier to come here legally than illegally, which right now it's substantially easier to do so. And we need to get serious on on the cartels, the coyotes, the smugglers that continue to perpetrate everything from human trafficking to the fentanyl trade and abusing, you know, our our lax border security. Um, I'll just finally say, because I knew we were going to visit this morning, that to just give you context, because it's one thing to say a million people are coming, you know, over several months or 300,000. But I'll just share with you, and I was proud of my race to have the Border Patrol Union. They're the only union that represents the agents. If I were to tell you there's only 20,000 Border Patrol agents monitoring thousands of miles of frontier between U.S. and Mexico, I'm not sure that you would believe me. And, and if I were to tell you that half of them are doing paperwork, they're feeding babies, they're changing diapers, mm-hmm. and not actually out on, on the front line, you know, you can do the math. I mean, it's just simply unsustainable to have only 20,000 agents keeping watch when literally millions of people have come across. And the same number, by the way, approximates how many ICE agents we have dealing with the internal federal immigration policy. And that's, that's you know, 20 to 21,000. And, you know, we've seen ver- a variety of memos from the federal, from DHS Americas himself saying, do not actually enforce federal immigration laws unless it's incident to another federal crime. And so it's just, it boggles the mind that this is a, a shrewd political move that they think that would help them, but it's going to end up blowing up in their face and I think benefit conservatives up and down the ballot. George, I want to talk a little bit more about the political impact uh, because it's real. You can feel it. It's palpable. Um, but just as an aside uh, for a moment, I'm curious. You know, I can remember, I'm not much older than you and my brother Matt here, <laughs> but I can remember a time when uh, relatives in our family, even you know we ourselves, would think about going to visit the uh, border towns in Texas or in the southwestern United States, a very, very beautiful country. And uh, it just seems like we've we've entered a different era. It, it used to be safe. It used to there used to be you know cross border traffic and community and trade back and forth that seemed res- relatively and reasonably safe. What has been the impact on the border communities now? Are they in as much chaos as it appears that they are from national TV, or is this being sensationalized? No, I would say it's certainly on the other side of the border. I mean, there there are some estimates that you see out of the state of Tamaulipas, which is where Matamoros is located, that, you know, encounter more political assassinations than anywhere in the world. The, the cartels have clearly cornered the, the transit corridors that lead into the richest and most powerful nation in the world. And that's important real estate for, for the cartels. Yes. So, that's what's changed significantly since, you know, our days where, you know, college kids would go down to, to the border for spring break and, and, and have fun. Or you'd hear from boomers and, and others that would go down and have lunch on the other side of the border and come back. And now you, you just don't hear about that ever occurring. On the U.S. side, I just want to commend a lot of these communities that, that have just absorbed the vast amount of people that are, that are occurring. So like Eagle Pass, which right now is getting all the attention is really not that large of a city. It's, you know, probably just a few 10,000 of people, probably less than, than 50,000 people 
but yet on a daily basis, they're absorbing somewhere between five and, and 10,000 at the peak migration phase of, of what we've seen this past last, last year. And so, you know, we are forward deploying all of our National Guard, our DPS troopers, who typically enforce law and highways now are enforcing state and sometimes, and we're challenging this in court, federal law uh, along the border. But it, it's all to say that, you know, these communities are doing what they can to, to instill order. We, there is state support, some federal support, but make no mistake when it comes down to education, because under Piler versus Doe, you know, any Texas public school has to admit an illegal immigrant child, regardless of their, their citizenship status. We also have to take care of all the hospital and healthcare needs as well along these border communities. But DPS consistently puts out their reporting that shows that high-speed car chasing, the stash houses that you see in many parts of uh, South Texas have skyrocketed. These are transit houses for human trafficking and, and fentanyl. And so crime is, has, um, has spiked in a lot of these peaceful, law-abiding towns. So, you know, there, there is an impact, an immediate impact to, to illegal immigration that we're very familiar with, regretfully, in Texas. And it, it's dangerous. Um, and that's why, you know, you're not seeing as much population growth and economic growth in, in those areas of Texas as you're seeing in, in what we call the golden triangle between, you know, North Texas, uh, Houston, Austin area, and San Antonio. So, you know, it's it's problematic, and we need we need help from the federal government, and we're hoping for that change come January 25. Awesome, uh, uh, land commission, former land commissioner of Texas, George P. Bush, hang with us on the line through the break. We're talking about border security and the impact it's having on Texas and the rest of the country. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Freeing the woke from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. All right, we're talking to former Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush, who has a significant Florida pedigree, and uh, we like to claim him as our own, although I'm sure Texas does the same. Uh, Commissioner, thanks for being on the line. I just wanted to get back to talking about the political ramifications of the failed border policy right now, but uh, just a question. I'm looking at polling around the country, and I'm seeing that in some polls among independents, NPAs, over 55 to 60 percent of that population, true independent voters, are picking the border as their number one issue because of all this mess that's going on in the news. And then when they're asked, who do you trust more to solve this issue, they are overwhelmingly, like more than 70, 75 percent, picking Republicans. Are you surprised, being the political uh, scientist and artist that you are, that Biden has waited so long to even engage on the issue? That I, I don't have an answer on just because, you know, a lot of Texans remember when Kamala Harris was deemed the so-called border czar and has literally done nothing with respect to enhancing border security. Um, a lot of Texans look with uh, suspicion on the fact that she came to El Paso and didn't visit the border you know, had a few photo ops in the city of El Paso, cleaned up the streets and moved a lot of the migrant camps to other parts of the city. And and I think that's what, what frustrates at least a lot of Texans. And so, you know, we so we've seen kind of the effect of these bad policies from from day one. Uh, we recall the first day of Biden coming in and through executive order, essentially 
doing what he could to downgrade the legal defenses that allowed federal officials to deport folks under Title 42. For example, um, the Remain in Mexico policy was was uh, demolished in addition to the bilateral agreements that we had with folks coming in from the Northern Triangle to apply for asylum from their country of origin rather than a port of entry. And and that's really the the mainstay of what coyotes of smugglers cartels are telling migrants to do and, and making a fortune off this, by the way, is to show up to a port of entry, uh, resign yourself to a political, concede yourself to a, a federal official and then apply for asylum. And then you're given a notice to appeal, appear, an NTA for short. And on average, those wait times are in excess of now close to two years. Mm. We know what happens with folks when they get that NTA. They, they get a publicly funded trip to a, a destination of their choosing in the United States. I've been on many flights coming in from El Paso, from McAllen, from uh, Laredo to, you know, say Houston or DFW. And folks, you could tell carrying the paperwork and, and coming through this process, by the way, you and I are picking up the bill on that. And then overstaying that that visa or not showing up for the federal court appearance. And so it, it's just we've created this um, this pull policy for for people to come here. And it's just simply not not sustainable. So I'm not surprised by the political impact. It's too little too late for this administration to uh, say that they're for enforcing our federal immigration laws. And cynically, the Democrats are leveraging this issue, suddenly coming up with this plan out of the Senate and Chuck Schumer to get funding for Israel and Ukraine at the same time. The reality is, you know, at the outset, they made a very bad calculation that this would win support in the Hispanic community, and it's done the exact opposite. So in addition to that polling data, there's also information coming out recently that just this week that blacks and, and Hispanics now are, are flocking away from the Democrat Party. And mm-hmm. I would suspect that immigration is a big part of that because they're having to absorb this bill. And there's no reason why we're, we're doing this when we have a legal immigration process that that needs to be upheld and honored and supported. But yet we've decided we're sending this message abroad that, hey, you can come here legally and you know you you can figure it out when you get here so uh, just frustrating to to wait but uh, i think we'll get there and and hopefully we use this as an opportunity to to return to some good policies i think one of the things that we those of us not in texas are not not looking at the border on any kind of regular basis one of the things that's hard for us to understand is you know in the past you had this idea or this image in your mind of of smuggling of people coming in through trucks or tunnels or, or these other sort of covert means. And now it's, it seems like the majority is this uh, asylum process. And um, it, can you give us a little color commentary on that? You know, like what, if, if you're at the border, are people just basically walking up to the federal agents and turning themselves in, or do you still have some of the people who are, who are sneaking in through um, those more covert ways and then as uh, another piece of that is if you're from one of these countries that that um, we have a sort of blanket policy of asylum uh, toward, are they producing evidence of their country of origin or are we just sort of taking their word for it? Yeah, so very good question. So uh, the, the best way I can share an answer would be just in my you know race for attorney general, I had the chance to, to drive the entire border between Texas and Mexico from El Paso to Brownsville twice. 
Um, and I, I learned a lot. I remember going to state acreage actually that was managed by my, my old agency, the general land office, where we were building state wall right next to federal land where during the early days of the Biden administration, they shut down construction and let the, the metal fence just literally sit there um, horizontally unconstructed. And I remember going out with, on a patrol with um, with folks from the Border Patrol Union, and they shared with me that, you know, this will be a slow day. And within an hour, as the sun came across the horizon, the, about a caravan, a small caravan, about 180 people came across mm. state acreage, but all of whom basically said, hey, I'm not I'm not from Mexico. I'm here to surrender myself in here and, uh, and apply for asylum. And so of that caravan alone, and this is just a simple anecdote that I'm sharing with you, all of the entire caravan was not from Mexico. They were from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. So they were Northern Triangle um, of from origin. And basically all you have to do is verbally state that you're from those countries that you fear. And this is where the cartels and the coyotes and the smugglers come in because they train you to say the right things to get that notice to appear. And in this case, it's, hey, I've, I'm under uh, duress. I feel uh, I fear for my life along with my family. And that's why I've come to the United States. So to, to answer the second part of your question, uh, so it's, it's, it's basically, you know, the Biden policy has created a supply chain. It, we are the taxpayers funding this this process. And it's, it's actually very civil in that respect. But I think the second part of your question deals with the criminal element. And this is where the cartels really take advantage uh, of us in that they know that of the 21,000 Border Patrol agents that are keeping the watch, half are devoted to doing what I just described, which is the processing. It's handing over to the temporary uh, processing facilities that HHS will then um, investigate from a healthcare standpoint, making sure that you don't have a, um, a communicable disease or something that would uh, infect our own population. And then you have the judicial piece that deals with the notice to appear. And so because of that, they know that they can go to areas between the ports of entry. That's in the rural areas. The towns like right now, Camado is a big one that's close to Eagle Pass or outside of big cities like El Paso and McAllen. And that's where they know they can transit the drugs. And to give you and your audience kind of a, a rough math figure of what that is, the Board Patrol Union would always share that if you take the figure on apprehensions, so we've talked about 300,000 apprehensions in the month of December alone, take that and divide by two, and that's roughly going to be your gotaway figure. Your gotaway figure are the population of folks that are coming in undetected. And so when people throw out the figure of three million encounters during the Biden days, you know, that's that's roughly a million and a half gotaways. Um, so, you know, we know that in that gotaway figure that there are going to be people that are on the FBI most, uh, wanted list. And we know that there's people that are not here just strictly for economic reasons, but they're here to, to do harm. Uh, so this is truly a national security issue, not just an economic issue that we have to confront, um, with, with real, with real enforcement. We could draft new laws all day long in D.C. and Tallahassee and Austin, but unless we actually have the boots on the ground to deal with the the massive influx and with with tightening those asylum laws, we're, we're just going to continue to see this issue. So, George, you mentioned uh, the, the uh, buzz phrase I want to get to, which is national security. Um, we've got a, a chief executive 
who's being begged by not just the Texas governor, Arizona governor, even the New Mexico governor to clearly not California, but <laughs> those three governors to take action on the border. He's directing, uh, if you you know view the news from the reports from the last two or three weeks, his own federal agents to basically not support what's going on with the Texas Guard. Uh, as our enemies abroad, China, Russia, uh, interest in the Middle East, Iran, see his weakness in even protecting our own borders, uh, you, you served in the military. What, what message does that send to them about even our commitment to allies abroad? Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's devastating. I mean, all of, all, all of our alliances are, are called into question, but, you know, we're not taking care of our, our home front. And in terms of the deal that, that's being proposed out of the Senate, I mean, look at the numbers. It's, it's $80 billion for, for Ukraine. I think it's 10 plus, maybe 12 billion for for Israel, but only 20 billion for the border. Um, you know what was interesting in my time, you know, running for office and spending great time with honorable law enforcement officials on the border is that they said that, you know, in any given year we'll have over 120 nations represented in terms of illegals that that come across, and it's, so it's not strictly folks even in our own hemisphere that are coming across. Uh, you may remember, you know, a few years back early on in the Biden administration in El Paso that two Yemeni nationals were, were found that were known members of, of Al-Qaeda that were um, amazingly detained. And, and thankfully, because of uh, our, our cross-reference checking through federal uh, databases, that we were able to you know, detain them. But again, going back to the Godaway figure, this is, this is not just you know, dozens or hundreds of people. This is, this is millions of people. And so, you know, we're, we're just doing this, this um, policy by, by executive fiat and also by, you know, judicial court when we need the Congress to, to act on this issue, tightening the asylum laws and, and making it clear to our, our partners. And we've done this before. During the Trump days, he brought in the presidents of El Salvador, Honduras, and, and um, you know, and, and Nicaragua as well to draft these agreements on a bilateral basis so that we can re- restore what asylum truly is meant for. Our country is so compassionate and so loving, um, but that that's getting abused by by people from all over the world, and um, we need to rein that in quickly. Land Commissioner George P. Bush, thank you so much for joining us today. We want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you you have absolutely increased the intellectual heft of this show by your presence. So we really do appreciate you joining. I wish you the best. If you decide to run again, count on us. Awesome, man. Let's do it again. Sounds good. Thank you. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Great interview with former Land Commissioner of Texas, George P. Bush, Matt. I thought that he really hit the nail on the head on a number of uh, topics related to the border crisis. I was most interested to hear some of his take on the way that the, um, that the uh, let's just call them immigrants or people coming across the border, are coming almost trained to take advantage of the loose holes in our process. Very fascinating. It was a very illuminating interview, and it answered a lot of the questions that I had. I mean, every time you get a question answered, it kind of leads to three or four more. 
but you're exactly right. It's a it's a um, it's an orchestrated system, right? You have people that are benefiting, uh, people who are profiting by what is a just completely porous border with some theoretical rules, but which are almost unenforceable as long as you know what those rules are and you know what to say. And uh, it's it's very interesting to hear that from a firsthand perspective. Um, I was discouraged by a couple of things. I mean, there, there are things that you kind of assume or wonder about, but that estimate of the Godaway number, you know, mm-hmm. like divide, take take the ones that we know about and divide by two to mm-hmm. get a guess at the Godaway number. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing is just the lack of staffing or the lack of, I mean, that's basically a lack of commitment or resources uh, of people who are actually trying to be in the position of, uh, of, of enforcing security. Instead, we have uh, paperwork processors. We have people who are um, almost part of like the welcome mat system as opposed to actually defending the border. Yeah, I thought that George uh, was making a good point when he uh, suggested that uh, we're sitting here looking at a, an additional funding package for Ukraine. We're talking about a funding package for Taiwan. We're talking about a funding package for Israel. All potentially may be well, uh, good and well enough for America's interest abroad, but it seems to pale in comparison to the crisis that we're facing on the border right now. Yeah, the number, I mean, it's a very good point. And uh, we tried to do some calculations on the numbers as far as what would it take to actually build the whole wall, um, at least for at least for Texas. And I forget the number we came up with. Tim Scott actually mentioned it in one of the presidential debates, and I think it was like 40 billion or something like that. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money, right? But relative to what we're spending other money on, it's just not that much. Compared to a 30-something trillion dollar deficit right now, it feels like a rounding error. Yeah, the right, the debt to 30 trillion. And um you know, the other the other piece of it that uh that's just kind of mind-blowing, you know, it's just I, I guess the um the unwillingness, I think that's what I keep coming back to, is just like the unwillingness to try to treat this as the problem that it is. You know, he mentioned the HHS process of checking for communicable illnesses. I'm glad they're doing that, right? Mm-hmm. But um, if that's actually something we're worried about, why aren't we worried about the 50% of the people who aren't going through that process who are coming in because it's so porous? You know, it's like it, it only takes – I don't think it takes – more than a few people with one of those communicable uh, diseases to create a big problem for us. So why are we uh, why are we so unconcerned about having a tight lid on the border? Well, we're dealing with a lot of incredulity uh, across the country as people wonder what the agenda is here. I think you know if I can really boil this down to something that's more personal. If I you know I'm a dad. I got five kids. Uh, my wife, a very patient wife, deals with all of my issues. But I'll tell you where they would have a breaking point. Uh, let's say we were robbed. If we were robbed, and uh, you know we called the, the police and said, "Hey, let's fill out a report, etc." That would be one thing. If we were robbed repeatedly every night, they were coming almost at the same time every night or at all points during the day, you would think at some point they would say, well, Dad, can't you defend us? Can't you get a security agency or can you start firing yeah. some shots at these guys? Why, why right? do you insist on leaving the garage door open? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or why aren't we moving? Why aren't we doing something? So the point is, is that at, at some point, if you continue in this type of behavior, eventually your kids – your family are going to look at you and say, well, I guess you want to be robbed. And it seems that the Biden administration and all of his 
advisors currently think that there is somehow some good being maintained or they're buying in, again, we talked about it in the first segment, into this woke Marxist idea that America needs to be deconstructed with this massive population boom. Even if it's not a clearly articulated philosophy in in these people's minds, that's exactly where they are. There's this um, just sort of underlying suspicion of America or traditional values and this idea that, well, if it's against that sort of thing, then then it must be good for us. I, you know, Governor DeSantis and Abbott have been criticized for some um, stunt making with their delivery of some of the illegal immigrants into, you know, Martha's Vineyard or some of the other sort of like posh communities yeah. in America. But honestly, nothing could be a, a better demonstration of the truth of what's going on, which is that people, the people who are in control of these policies are in places where they don't have to confront the reality. Right. They don't have to confront the reality of of what it's doing to a place like Texas and what it's doing to these border towns. Uh, and so until that confrontation really, truly happens, um, you don't really see a change. I mean, other than the ballot box, of course, that's what everybody's talking about is that the leadership needs to change, and we hope it does. Uh, but until until people actually have to confront the reality, there's probably no no change hoped for. So I'm going to throw something out there with the uh, time that we have left uh, this afternoon, and uh, you know, take it for what it was what uh, for what it is, Matt. We're just kind of uh, banding back and forth here. But it would seem that you can militarize the border. They certainly the the cartels have certainly militarized the border to a certain degree on the other side. They're controlling the Mexican side of the border. We're not controlling right now either side of our border. It would seem you could back up troops, checkpoints, or even automated machine guns. We talked about that a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, within uh, I don't know a thousand feet of the fence, get the fence built, and I think after a few people were shot they would understand that we're serious and it would probably stop. Right. And nobody wants to shoot anybody. Nobody wants that. And I don't think anyone's advocating for that, but it's just a basic component of security. If you have any place that's theoretically secure, your home, um, the U S Capitol building, the state, the Florida state Capitol building an airport, any place that's supposedly secure there is some threat of force right? By, by genuine authorities who act reasonably and according to law. And we have this situation where we have, it's like, why do we even have a border? Like, what's the, what's the purpose? If you travel, if you uh, get on a flight and go to a foreign country, when you come back, you have to go through all this process. You have to prove who you are. You have to have an ID. You have to answer questions by the customs and immigration people. And there's a guard standing there with a gun on, Right. And you know I can't just like blow through it or there's going to be some sort of consequence. So if we're going to have a border, it should be it should be for real. And there should be some reasonable threat of force if the basic premise that this is uh that you can only cross this with permission if that's not followed. Exactly. If you have rioters in downtown, if there's 20,000 people rioting, a few people are going to have to be shot to maintain order. I think that should happen at the border. Look, it's been a great discussion today with former Texas Commissioner, uh, Land Commissioner George P. Bush, talking about the border. It won't matter, folks, if we don't get out and vote. The key is, is that to beat Joe Biden and restore any semblance of order at the border, we have to go vote. You guys take care. We'll see you next week. 
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Making their way the only way they know how. Let's just